Bruh, you do not want me to talk about Damian Lillard. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you. But, but... Because yeah. if these people loved Damian Lillard the way they say they love Damian Lillard, yeah. they would be writing fucking, like, <laughs> letters begging that GM to let that brother free. Welcome to The Detour, where we connect ideas and personal experiences without looking for easy solutions. Kiese Lehman is not from Oregon. He's from Mississippi. Now he lives in Houston, where he writes and teaches writing at Rice University. Not long after being named a MacArthur Fellow, Kiese joined us as part of our People, Place, and Power Consider This series in March 2023. While he was here, Kiese said some beautiful, funny, insightful, and provocative things about home and about race and honesty, even about Damian Lillard and the Blazers and the soap opera The Young and the Restless. Wherever Kiese is, whatever he's talking or writing about, he seems to be thinking a lot about how we become who we are and where our loyalties, our deepest commitments, should lie. Kiese is incredibly loyal to Mississippi, also incredibly critical of it. He's intensely connected to his grandmother and his mother, and he wonders about important choices they've made. And he models an allegiance to the United States that's as barbed and jagged and real as the nation's history. Whether he's talking about race, class, the Dukes of Hazard, or the Ole Miss football team, Kiese is worth listening to. From the moment I met Kiese backstage at the Alberta Rose Theater in March 2023 until the last audience member left after asking Kiese to sign a copy of his memoir, Heavy, and pose for a selfie, I felt really lucky to be in the orbit of the warmth, humor, intelligence, and tender honesty that radiates all around him. I think I speak for the whole audience, too, when I say we cannot wait to invite him back to this place, mess and all. I was going to ask us to say a big, warm Portland welcome to Kiese Lehman. Can we do that one more time? A big, warm welcome. Um, thank you all for, for making space to meet it for me tonight. Um, often when I do talks, I have to decide before I talk whether I want to be invited back. And I can just tell you from this vibe, I definitely won't be invited back. So, so, <laughs> so I'm gonna try to be uh, as honest and, and soulful as I can be, but I'm also gonna try to not leave a lot of mess for y'all to clean up. Cause that's how you don't get invited back to places. We, in, we you can got take it? it, absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. 
Exactly. We, we invited you in part for the mess, and you say, and you said you want to be honest, but you also say in a couple of places in your books, you encourage, you say you're going to try to be as honest, as generous, and as tender with each other as we can be. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this isn't where I was going to start, but because of what you just said, I think uh, usually we think of honesty as uh, something that's prefaced by the adjective brutal. Right. So how do you put honest with tender? You work. And, and, and I think, um, I don't remember the first time I wrote those two words together, but you know, writers have all of these little many epiphanies. But the first time I wrote those two words together, I was definitely on some like, that don't work. You know, like, what is tender honesty? I mean, this was a long, long time ago. Um, and I don't like to talk in fortune cookie messages. <laughs> and I was just about to. Um, so I'll try to be messy and not be clean. But, but so, 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 so for me, it's, it's just, uh, <laughs> I, I think sometimes making honest proclamations can run counter to, like, taking care of your insides. And, and what I often want to do is like uh, tell myself, remind myself that when I am being quote unquote honesty or searching for honesty or being, you know, nudging people to look toward what we might consider truth or honesty, um, I think it's most important that we do that um, with a tender uh, disposition and, and a care for ourselves. But I also don't think that that care means that we don't need to push and be pushed. So I'm just saying I think it's contradictory, but mm -hmm. so is cool. life. So. Great. So is life. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe so is Mississippi, and maybe so is Oregon. And I know you write a lot about Mississippi, and I hope we're going to talk a lot about Mississippi. And I hope here uh, we're also thinking about Oregon or wherever it is that we come from and the nation. Uh, it feels like a lot of what you're writing about when you write about Mississippi is uh, it's not just a place some ideas, some people. And so I, I guess I wanted to ask early on, like, when did you start to realize that Mississippi meant something to you? Oh, man. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I won't be too long-winded, but, you know, my, my mother uh, had me when she was 19. She was a, a student at Jackson State University. My father was 20. He was in this uh, organization called Republic of New Africa. And... I just had young parents who attempted to make me understand the importance of Pan-Africanism, right? So I understood the importance of the continent and parts of our relationship to the continent. Um, you know, my mother would have freedom fighters over from Zimbabwe mm -hmm. often. So it wasn't until I was probably like 11 when I started to give my state the same attention that I had been given mm -hmm. to like Pan-Africanism, as, even as a young person, because that's what my mama drilled into me. So, I think when I was like around 11 or so, um, my mother didn't let me read these books. She didn't let me read black books in my house because she thought reading white books would protect me. Um, and then I remember reading a book, ironically, about this dude, David Dennis Sr., who is David Dennis Jr., my friend's father, and a lot of work that they'd done around Freedom Summer. And so when I started to understand that like, my getting an education in Mississippi was like a death-defying, like, radical, revolutionary thing as a 12-year-old, 11, 12-year-old, that's when I started to understand that like, Mississippi meant something different. You know what I'm saying? The might of Mississippi. And that, and at that point, you know, I knew Jackson was the blackest place that I'd ever known. I knew Mississippi was the blackest state in the union, but I didn't really know what that, what that meant to the rest of the world. And also didn't know why the white people, when I was 12 or 11, were so adamant 
that that those people who had less would continue to have even less. And so like when I started to understand that shit and, and I started to see the history of Mississippi fully, I started to really start to appreciate like the geography of Mississippi. That's probably around 13 or 14. And then I did that thing where when you become educated, you use that education as a shield. You start trying to act like your fucking place is the best place ever. I did that for like two decades, you know what I mean? I started telling everybody in New York, man, fuck your borough, you know what I'm saying? Like, motherfucker, do y'all have rivers in this mother? And they'd be like, that's the Hudson. And I'd be like, but is it the New York River? Cause we got a Mississippi River. You know, like you just start being mad reactionary <laughs> to everything. And, and it's easy to be reactionary about Mississippi because across the world, like if you know about Mississippi, most people often know it as some place that lacks. Mm. And I just wanted people to be like, if you think Mississippi lacks as the blackest station and blackest state in the nation, I feel like you're saying the black folks in Mississippi lack, mm. and I'm trying to be like, well, we don't, you know what I'm saying? Or we do, but we don't lack any more, any more differently than you do. So that's a long-winded answer, but yeah, it was probably on 13 or 14 for me. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like a long-winded answer at all, and it feels like it's a start, Yeah. Uh, in part because it feels like talking about Mississippi is talking about the country, and it's talking about race, uh, talking about class, too. Um, there's uh, that epigraph to heavy is t from Tony K. Bambara, mm -hmm. um, an author who, among other things, has a short story collection called Gorilla, My Love, and there's mm -hmm. a story in that called The Lesson, and you refer to Bambara a lot as someone who was formative for you. There's a character in The Lesson, Miss Moore, mm -hmm. like this informal teacher, yep. who... The narrator, Sylvia, says, Miss Moore's always saying, where we are is who we are, right. but it don't necessarily have to be that way. Yep. And I just wonder, like, Sylvia's recounting right. of Miss Moore's comment, where we are is who we are, but it don't necessarily have to be that way. Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, first of all, I want to say, if you haven't read Bambara um, and you profess to like a short story, I don't really know if you've read short stories. Like, Bambara in The Lesson and other pieces in Gorilla My Love, like, taught me what was possible uh, with what we call a short story. But but that quote is is tough because, like, when I, when I read that quote and when I reread that quote and when I hear it, I almost hear it as, like, implicitly in a pot, like sometimes some of us feel like we need to apologize for where we from. Mm -hmm. And as coming from Mississippi, you know, like I've, I've been through that stage and, and I don't think I stayed in that stage as long as other people I know. Um, but I think power, tender power, means you can stand in front of people outside of Mississippi and say, I absolutely grew up in a place where the water looked like hmm. vegetable oil. Mm -hmm. I absolutely grew up in a place taking showers. When you, when you got out, you didn't have to really necessarily put on lotion because it felt like you were taking a shower in lotion. Mm -hmm. But I also grew up in a place that literally created what y'all call civil rights. You know what I'm saying? I grew up in a place that created Fannie Lou Hamer, that created Ida B. Wells, that created Mecca Evers, that mm -hmm. created Jasmine Ward. So, I feel that quote, but I feel like if you feel it too much, you can get into a place where you apologize for what people in your state did to the best people in your state. And what I want to do is live in the fucking like, like majesty of what the best people in my state did. So I feel that quote deeply, but I also just want to be able to say I'm not apologizing for what the best of Mississippi did ever mm -hmm. outside of Mississippi, but I am. Um, but I do feel responsible for some of what the worst of Mississippi has done. I, mean, I, th I think those are paradoxical. 
You see what I'm saying? You feel you said you feel responsible for some of the worst that Mississippi has Absolutely. done. How so? I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Mississippi. I mean, like, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about this. I can't see y'all right now, so I don't know if. <laughs> this, uh, yeah, yeah, you definitely, you definitely here. I, I can't tell who or what kind of folks are here. So, so maybe, maybe that's for the best. But, 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 I, but, I, but I think like, I think that, um, you know, bro, bro, like before, before the pandemic, I would, I would go into like these juvenile detention centers in Jackson, my, my city. <laughs> And I remember one time, last time I was there with my friend Ryan Mack, we grew up together. Um, Ryan taught me how to be an artist. Among other things, Ryan went to prison for a little while. And we went to this place to talk, and then the kids were talking to us, and this one kid was like, um, he asked Ryan what he did to get in, and Ryan was like, you know, I shot somebody. And then the kid was like, how many people you shot? And then Ryan didn't want to say, and then Ryan eventually said. And then the kid was, but then Ryan's whole point was like, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you cannot carry a gun in Jackson, Mississippi after you get arrested, because that's what I did. And then these little jokers were like, but, but this Jackson. And you can say I didn't fail, but I'm a fucking writer who writes every single day of my life to young people in Mississippi. Mm. So I think one of the problems we have in my state, maybe in Portland, definitely in the nation, is that we kind of don't want to take responsible for any fucking failure. You know what I'm saying? And so like, I can be like, oh, I wrote a fucking book called Heavy. I wrote a book called Long Division. I wrote some blah, blah, blah. I'm in Portland. People come out here and clap for me. I'm very, very thankful. But I'm under no illusion that like my art has done what I wanted it to do. Because if my art did what I wanted it to do, that motherfucker wouldn't even be in prison. That motherfucker wouldn't even be talking to us about guns, what, what, like how you have to have a gun. And so that does not mean you need to take all of this on your back. But I think it's, it's, I think it's much more important that we sit in the failures sometimes of our art with the expectation that we can revise that failure into something else. And for me, I'm definitely in here fucking responsible for Mississippi. I went to school with the mate, with the governor. I went to school with Tate Reeves. Mm -hmm. I didn't bust that motherfucker in his face. <laughs> I'm responsible for that. You know what I mean? That's true. I hope y'all recording it too, because that's true. So I'm just saying, like, you know, it, it's not even... Yeah, we responsible. I mean, you know, I, I didn't I didn't pass the last bill that like <laughs> like that wouldn't let poor people like not pay their water bill. Like I fought against that shit diligently. Um, but we lost. So yeah, when you lose, you're responsible. That's a big I mean, responsible is a big word. And yeah. you just said you're in some way responsible for a governor with whom you have strong disagreements and would have liked to pop in the face. And if we bring that home to ourselves. That's asking us to feel responsible for all sorts of things we're usually better at pointing at and seeing out there. So, yeah, but that's the thing. Like, I don't want to be ableist, but like, you know, if one can point with one, like I can point here and point there. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm pointing at two different places here. And, and if I have two hands, I'm pointing at you. You know what I'm saying? If I do this, I'm pointing at me and you. So, so like the notion of a pointer is, is interesting. Like, yeah, point, but, but like, the thing about critique that I hear in this country is that like even the people we pointing at, like we're not saying anything about. Mm -hmm. I think and I think in order to kind of point two different ways, it, it's going to take a lot. You know what I'm saying? Because you're going to have to talk to people about what you think is your success. Somebody might be like, "That's wrong," and you got to talk to people about the way you fail. 
And I just think, like, we don't ask that of presidents, we don't ask that of governors, we rarely ask that of principals, we don't ask that of fucking uh, preachers. So every institution is hollow because we ain't asking the motherfuckers who run it, like, when was the last time you failed and how? So in the absence of that shit, like, people can read a book like Heavy and be like, oh, da 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 I'm like, fam, like, we live in a cauldron of fucking dishonest, like, like disaster. Hmm. <laughs> and so, like... I just think maybe if we took responsibility for what that means, but I don't think take responsibility for what that means is a speech act. Yeah. I think it might begin with a speech act, but I think ultimately like it, it, it takes a lot of speech acts, it takes a lot of accountability, it takes a lot of failure, it takes a lot of pushing. Um, damn, I didn't want to get all heavy like that real quick, but. It's good. I mean, while you were talking, it made me think of your, your grandmother, especially mm. as she shows up in in heavy and of her commitment to Mississippi. And when you ask her, uh, why didn't you leave? Why, why do you stay? Yeah. Yeah, fam. Like, she's just, she, she is, I was about to say was, and that's what makes me not happy, but she mm -hmm. is one of those people in the world who, um, again, I won't talk about it too long, but you know, like people often talk about the Great Migration and all the people that left Mississippi to go to Indianapolis, Chicago, Detroit. Um, but also, a lot of times, these people in the migration left like rural towns, like Forest, where my grandma and my mama grew up, to go to like southern cities, like Jackson or like Memphis. So, so the Great Migration was much more complicated, I think, than people talk about. But the thing about the migration that I think we don't sit in enough is that like that first generation of people who were left had a lot of work to do, hmm. who were left. My grandmama was left hmm. at eight years old. And, and she didn't want to go. But there's a lot of shit my grandmama didn't want to do that her parents and parental figures and, and, and older people made. So my grandmama was able to stay in Mississippi because she was able to stay, ironically, with um, a woman that she called her mother, who I thought was my grandmother my whole life. Um, and this woman ended up uh, having a... <laughs> having an <laughs> affair with her real father who supposedly left and went up north with her actual mother. Um, so she, she wanted to stay. Like at eight years old, she was working in the fields. She tells me in the story, who knows if the story's true, but her, her story was like, I didn't want to go up north. Like they got land up there. That's what my grandma once said. They, they got land up there? And people would be like, nah. And then she'd be like, well, what I'm going for? Mm -hmm. And then she's like, well, you know, because fucking like Jim Crow and like, you know, the, uh, some of our family is up there and they're building. And then she'd be like, you know, my grandma, she real petty. She'd be like, oh, you talking about so-and-so who live in eight motherfuckers in a room? <laughs> and I'd be like, and then they say, grandma, be like, yeah, she's like, nah, I'm good in this little one bedroom shotgun house, like up on cinder block. So she, when we talk about, when some of us talk about the wonder of Mississippi, like she saw that shit early. And even now, she's 94 years old, and she's at my auntie house, and I guarantee you, she's not lucid, but when she is lucid, the thing she's gonna say is, take me home. Mm. I wanna go back to my house, to, to the house that I made for myself. So, you know, I don't have that same thing in me. Like, I left Mississippi, I mean, I didn't wanna leave, but I left when I was 20, I came back, and then just left again, you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we, we're different people in that way, but I, but I, but I do appreciate her love and desire. Um, to not relinquish that which she worked for. Yeah. You know saying like that, that that's my grandma's shit. My grandma's just like, yo, I worked for this shit, fam. Like you not, I'm not finna give this shit up to go up north to rent some house. Like that land, as fucked up as it is, that's our land. That's our land. We mm -hmm. ain't got no land up north. Mm -hmm. So 
there's a lot more to that story, but that's that's why she stayed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think she put so much of herself into it. She put so much of her life and work into it. And also, it was inherited, too. That's right. And it's so one of the things that I've been thinking about as this has been approaching is when when does it make sense to kind of cut bait? Uh, especially because you, I think, are getting us thinking a lot about freedom. Right. And I think there's a quick take on freedom that makes it sound like we go where we want to go. But the roots, the roots here feel very strong in Mississippi, in family, uh, and your grandmother, most of all, articulating it regularly. Yeah. Like, this is the land we worked. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, sort of meditating on when you, what happens if you have to leave. I, I would much rather, like, for schools, and because church is so big down there, maybe churches, this is, this is utopic. This is not... <laughs> this is utopic because the shit we're looking at is dystopic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so, like, I, I would, I would, I would really like if um, we kind of sat down with ourselves and uh, young people in our lives and talked about what it means to give to a place and leave. Like, like, can you give to a place mm-hmm. and leave? Can you, can you give? as much as you can to a place, especially if particularly at that time, staying in that place is destroying your heart. We all know we often, most of us die, I think, broken hearts. You know, you call it a heart attack, you call it whatever the fuck you want. But like, if, 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 if I think if, if I was taught as a young person that mobility is something that they do not want black folk to have, especially in my state, I think the flip is that we just like, so we gonna run. And what I, what, I, what I wish my people did a little bit more talking about was like, what happens? Can we run and tend to the place that we made? Hmm. Can you run to a different place and tend to a place? I think premature death makes this really hard because you're never given the possibility or probability that you're going to be able to make it back home. But I, but, but I do believe that you, can, that you can leave and tend to home. And I actually think if you don't tend to home when you leave, you're going to be passing to somebody else in them new spaces. And I think we see a lot of that shit. I see a lot of people, you know, I see, I, see, I see a number of writers out there in the world who are Mississippi writers who will not say they're Mississippi writers. You know what I'm saying? Like who, won't, who, who just won't, won't say that they're Mississippi writers because of what that might mean. So my point is like, I just think we can move to the world, go wherever we have to go, but creatively take home with us. And we have to decide what that means. Maybe that means you give all or half or whatever the fuck you make, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that means that you come home more often. But I think that the creativity in that question isn't even posed. And then we like lay it down to do you stay or do you leave? Mm-hmm. You can stay and hate the fucking place. You can leave and love it. But I don't think we really have done the work to like make those two texture realities hmm. kind of meet. You're listening to The Detour by Oregon Humanities. Yeah, it's the idea of tending to home, whether yeah. you're at home or not, it, that feels like a really potent way to put it. And it does make me think a little bit about this place, too, where yeah. Oregon, Oregon is not Mississippi. It's different in lots of ways. But like Mississippi, that's a good smile. <laughs> Did I not need to say Oregon is not Mississippi? I don't know, man. I mean, um, I mean, listen, 
yeah. We're listening. We're listening. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm all about shitting on places when I come to them. That's one of the things I'm good at. I don't know if Lysium knows that, but like I, I'm really great at shitting on a place when I come. But I, like, there are few, I'm not going to shit on Portland. I'm not going to shit on Portland directly. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm using mad subtext through all this whole conversation, and I hope y'all feel it. But, but I will say I am, I am, I am grateful to be here, because whatever, whatever is out there, or however this audience looks, I can't see, shit. <laughs> you get this kind of looking audience in Mississippi, they wouldn't be up here watching me. That's real talk. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? So, um, I'm not saying y'all need to congratulate yourselves for that, but I'm just saying <laughs> it's a little different. But y'all should come to Mississippi. You should come to Jackson to see how different it is. <laughs> Bring your own water. <laughs> well, actually thinking about the place and while you were talking and politely saying only indirect things, um, it made me think that there's actually an example here of a guy who who won't leave, even there there are other places he could go, and that's that's Damian Lillard. Bruh, you do not want me to talk about Damian Lillard. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you. But but because yeah. if these people loved Damian Lillard the way they say they love Damian Lillard, yeah. they would be writing fucking like <laughs> letters begging that GM to let that brother free. Hmm. Sorry. Sorry. So if they love him like they say, they would say, go to a place where it works. If I love you, I want you to do what's in your best interest. Even though you, you, you mean with this interviewing, you make me feel good. You make me feel good. But if I know that there's other opportunities out there for you to ultimately like win, and you might be like, I don't wanna go. But if I love you, I'm gonna be like, Man, you smooth in the motherfucker, bro. But you, you could be smoother. <laughs> I've you never might been be, called smooth before. That's the first time be, in my life. You might be smoother with the Bucks. You might be smoother with, dare I say, the Lakers. No, nobody's smoother with the Lakers. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like Dame, this sounds like. Uh, so Dame actually like grew up in California, but he has made. Oregon, a place that he is deeply committed to. And it, so, like, leave basketball aside for a minute to the extent that you can. He, he's, he's committed to a place in this very visible way, even though it's, the challenges are all over. And so the, the goal of excellence, it's a different kind of excellence, it seems like he's modeling. Right. I mean, I, I'm not going to, I mean, I feel like I've gone as far as I'm going to go in this. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying that, I'm, yes, but, but what I'm trying to tell y'all, we were talking about this a, a few minutes, we were just eating some good food a few minutes ago. And, um, and the thing to me about Dame is, oh, first of all, let me say, when I came to Portland like four or five, three, three or four years ago, and I came to Sunnyside, and I hadn't, like, I, haven't, I hadn't lived in a place at that point that had a basketball team. Right? I think at the time I was still at University of Mississippi. Okay. And, and full college football is the biggest thing in my state. And I, I had uh, tickets to the Grizzlies, but it was different, fam. Like I went into that school and like these like six-year-olds, five-year-olds, 13-year-olds, like they was all rocking the shit, 
right? Like they were, and like, so I, I had no idea what a player could mean to the development of young people before mm. I came to Portland. And I'm saying that, even saying that, I just don't think you, you, you put your well-being in the hands often of millionaires who never had to compete. And the GMs and the millionaires who make the decisions about where these fucking genius black motherfuckers are gonna go and play never had to compete. Mm-hmm. So the idea, like the idea in basketball that someone who is so piss poor at their job can tell someone who literally is one of the 10 best human basketball players on earth where to go. He been here long enough, bruh. Set that motherfucker free. <laughs> Y'all know it. Y'all got a lot going on. I just had some kombucha. That shit was popping. I mean, like, you know, you got a lot going on here. Like, you know, like, and it's not working. It's not working. Let that brother go. All right. We're going to, somebody here has a connection to Dame and to the front office. And so some, it's not me that has that connection, but someone that has it has to, has to get away to get this. Now you referred to the University of Mississippi football team. And there's a moment in the essay, uh, in, in this book, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. There's an essay about your developing relationship to the University of Mississippi football team and there's this one short line where you say you're talking about the outcome of the game and you say we won or something like oh, that man. and then the next sentence is we yeah that's that's uh I mean I, I wrote that essay for ESPN I mean they recording this <laughs> they what are they recording this they are okay <laughs> so somebody from ESPN <laughs> might, might have paid me to, to write an article about Miss, Ole Miss football when I first got there that was sort of going to be like the spark that was going to send everybody. Because people, people knew that they were cheating when I, when I first got there. I don't know if you know, but this was a few years ago. And so they might have given me some money to be like, write an essay when you get there that can be the smoking gun for da 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 da. So when I got there, I started interviewing people and writing an essay. And I was just like, yo, I can't. First of all, this is Oxford, Mississippi. Like, I can't come to Oxford, Mississippi. If any of y'all know Oxford, throw the football team, which is the economic engine of that shit. And it is and it's mostly all black boys. Throw that football team under the bus for $12,000 check from ESPN, when at that point, those players couldn't get a $10 check mm-hmm. from ESPN. So I literally was like, yo, I can't do what y'all want me to do. There's some fuck shit going on around here. But what I'm going to focus on is the strange sort of, like paradox of, of my being a, a visitor to Oxford, Mississippi. It's a part of Mississippi I never grew up in. I grew up in Central, not Northern. And, 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 and feeling this weird sort of like possession over these black boys, mm-hmm. which, is a, which is a similar possession that most, most of the white people in Oxford feel. And so if you really read that essay, like I'm going in, but I'm also going in on myself. Like when you just said that, I was like, God, that was so gross, Kiesa. Because there were times when I felt like we, like, you know, Ole Miss would be playing. Ole Miss would be playing football. And I call my boy Derek, uh, Derek Carell, and I'd be like, yo, how we doing? How we doing? And at the time, this fucking place had, you know, multiple con- con- Confederate statues on, 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 on the ground. And most importantly, y'all, like, the black student athletes of that school were the economic engine of the entire town. And they were not treated that way. They were treated like fucking like niggas when they lost, and they were treated like niggas who could play football good when they won, mm. which means they were treated like niggas. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So 
When I wrote that piece, I was trying to just sit in that, well, one, I'm coming back to the state. I ain't been here for 10 years. I feel this weird sort of collective weeness about these young black boys making all, of, making all of us happy, like raising the property value of fucking like houses and shit. Um, and I felt like they were, I mean, I felt, I got swept up in that shit. Mm -hmm. I, got, I got swept up into like the weeness of, of, that, of, that, of, that, of that institution and that football team, so. So it's inter the, the we part is interesting, and it made me think again about like that you and your grandmother, if I'm remembering right, would watch every Friday night the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, we sure did. And so the example of you feeling like this football team, we are part of, like we're winning, or you and your grandmother watching the Dukes of Hazard, where it right. feels like there is some really complicated identity stuff going on there. The I mean, Dukes it's kind of Hazard. It's kind of complicated, but the Dukes of Hazard wasn't, I mean, it was complicated for my mother, who was a college professor at the time, who could talk to you about why watching the show with white boys driving a General Lee with the Confederate insignia <laughs> was the antithesis of what black people might need to be consuming. Okay. But my grandmama is a Southern black woman who was fucking hungry for any kind of Southernness mm. that was shown on TV. Same reason she liked Hee Haw, same reason she liked Dallas. You see what I'm saying? So like, like, like I, think, I think it's important to talk about this because sometimes I think, particularly talking about uh, older grandmother type figures, I think we, we make them so saccharine and making them saccharine like they're like purely saccharine. You know what I mean? My grandmother had like a, a, a racial critique, she had a gender critique, um, she had a spatial critique, but she also found a lot of pleasure in um, Hee Haw and... Um, uh, I love that sentence, in, just in, on its own. In, in, in Dallas. But you know what else she found pleasure in? She found pleasure when she came home from work, from, from fucking slicing open chickens at the chicken plant. You couldn't talk to my grandmama from 11 to 12, 15, because she was watching um, uh, Young and the Restless. Mm. And so, and so, so, look at people clapping for that. <laughs> I know there's some black people out there, too. <laughs> That's how I know black people here. Y'all, she's clapping for Young and the Restless. Watch this, watch this. All my children, <laughs> black folks in Portland. There we go. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 so, and so, like, there's just a complexity to me about my granny and, and, and the shit she used to watch. And then her best friend, Mama Lara, was older than her. But 10.30 uh, Saturday nights is when wrestling used to come on. I would, you know, I was like between four and 10 years old. I'd just sprint down to my Mama Lara's house, who was slightly older than my grandmama. And we just sit there on some plastic fucking furniture and watch these mostly white men on steroids and tights. And we would watch primarily so we can tell we could see the black men come on there with tights, Butch Reed, Junkyard Dog and whatnot. So, so I'm just saying it's complicated, but at the same time, I just think sometimes, you know, black people get to, get to, get to in, in, in enjoy like, like, like transgressive pleasures as well, you know what sure. I'm saying? Um, and especially older grand, uh, black women, I just think we need to like open up possibility for that. Mm -hmm. You describe yourself multiple times as a southern black man. Mm. And it feels to me like it, it's a way of saying something that you were just talking about. Southern and black, but connected. Yeah. And I'm asking that, I'm building towards a question, or maybe it's not a question, maybe it's just a gesture in your direction. Someone that I was with last week said that she's, she's a teacher who's been doing this exercise with her students where she has them list five sort of categories that they're a part of, that are essential to who they are. Right. And then she makes them remove one by one 
the ones that aren't fundamental to who they are. Wow. And she gets them down to one. Yeah, right. It's, I, people are taking the Lord's name in vain in response to that exercise. Uh, I mean, is it possible to peel apart black and southern and male, for that matter? How do you think about the way those three things go together? Jeez, your peace, bro. Um, I don't like, okay, you asking me to be a person I don't like, so I'm going to be this person for like 25 seconds. Bring it, yeah. All right. I'm sorry, but you know, words, words are approximations. Like, I don't believe anyone in the world who tells me they're a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. I, know that they're, I know that they're using what they've been given. There's no, there's no reason in the world to think that there's only two genders. Like, there's no reason in the world to think that like, there's good and evil, right? Like, they're huh. approximations. So what I hear you asking me is like, what approximation would I be most okay with if mm -hmm. black, uh, southern, um, man, and, and because they are approximations, I, I'm gonna say black. Hmm. Because I think black, and, and the way we've, we've constructed that word, means so, 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 so much. Mm -hmm. And I think man, which is a different word than male, mm -hmm. which is a different word than southern, I just think those approximations are like, they, they, they're just la less weighty, they're less evocative, they're less interesting. I think black, the way I think it has been constructed, mm -hmm is an amalgamation of a whole lot of shit. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's just so like, it's a words, it's approximation. Like, I, I mean, you know, you ain't gotta ever call me a man. You ain't really gotta ever call me Southern. But if you don't call me black, I'm gonna feel some kind of way. <laughs> okay. With the understanding that whatever we, I mean by black, like I mean so much more. But I just think that that word, like is, is much more expansive, definitely than, than man, most definitely than male. And I think in Southern, mm. but maybe not. What was the 25 seconds that you didn't want to be? Well, because sometimes, bro, people don't want to hear you talk about how words are bullshit at, at a thing about words. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? People don't want to be reminded that we all up in here using symbols to communicate and acting like we know what the fuck other, everybody else means. <laughs> we don't know what the fuck nobody means up in here. We don't, but we, but we shake, we, you know, we act like, we gonna act like we do, so, um, but yeah. So, I'm gonna ask you about one more word, and if you don't wanna deal with the word, it's actually a word that doesn't show up in your books, as far as I can remember, but it's a word that shows up all the time in Portland, especially around race, mm. and that word is equity. And I'm curious because it's such a present word out here and I don't remember coming across it in any of these three books. And now you're shuffling in a way that makes me excited, so. <laughs> I'm, oh, um, I'm just off, I'm off, I'm, I'm, I'm very off Riddick and uh, questions that remind me of like DEI make me like, kind of make me itch. They get, um, the, they get the arthritis going? Yo, man, them equity conversations. Uh, because we're in a space now where people who don't say diversity want to pat them, not you, but people who don't say <laughs> diversity. Right, 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 exactly. Not you, not you. Yeah. You too smooth for this. Uh, <laughs> people who don't say diversity often want to pat themselves, we often want to pat ourselves on the back for using equity. Like, we don't mean diversity, we mean equity. So, um, but let me just say, take the question like on face value is like, 
I don't know what else to say other than like, I hope equity in this community means an honest assessment at what has been given to certain people and what should have been given to certain people. And, 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 and to question what, like, what it means to not be given what, you're, what, you, what, you, what you've earned and what you, what, you, what you earn and what you need for generations and generations and generations. And most important, and as importantly, think about what it means to be people who've been given way more than they actually deserve for generations and generations. I would assume equity means we look at that and we say, how do we fucking like equalize the, the distribution of resources and wealth? Mm -hmm. on, on, on the surface, that's what I assume it would mean. Mm -hmm. But because Portland, I assume, is like other places in the, in the world, you have a lot of people who say they earn some shit that they don't want to share with people who have also earned some shit. And, and, so, and so, like, I'm not coming, trying to be the person who come to Portland and try to tell Portland about Portland, because I hate people who do that kind of shit. But, 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 but if you're asking about equity, like, I would hope that people in this community, and this is where this is hard, because I think there are a lot of people who've been who, who've been gener generationally like given shit that they might not deserve. But the question is like, how do we share? If it's material, I think it's easy. But I also think culturally, some of us have been given something called home training. Hmm. I think we need to share that with some of these motherfuckers. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, 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 but conversely, like, you know, like I'm, I'm in a place in my life where I make, for my family, I make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to do with that money other than to share it with people. I used to share it with slot machines. And even when I shared it with slot machines, I still was like sharing it with my granny first. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm saying all that to say like, I don't want us to think that this equity model is, well, one, white folk, anywhere you go, owe people. They owe the people who stole, they stole the land from and they owe black and brown folks. I don't give a fuck what you're talking about, they just do. <laughs> but I also think families owe each other. And so, like, if there are, like, as someone in a family who makes a ton of money, I do have the responsibility to kind of, to not kind of, but to fucking, like, see what I can equitably share. Mm -hmm. It gets hard when you're talking about people who come from, like, like intergenerational poverty, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just, it's just different. Like, you, you, you know, you, you, I don't, you know, because you can do that, you do that three months in a row, you ain't got no more money, mm -hmm. you know? So... That's a hard question to me, yeah, um, yeah. but but I do think in in, in this community, I, I I would hope it would mean like sharing what you have unfairly accumulated mm -hmm. with people who have also done the work to accumulate. But at the end of the day, as we know, we got to question like accumulation and extraction. We, I mean, we got to question capitalism, but you can question capitalism while like giving your shit away. Mm -hmm. It's not like we got to figure that shit out. Before. No, motherfucker, like you know. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? And then the question though was like, what, 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 then what? But I also just don't think we're just talking about capital. I don't think we, I think we're talking about culture too. Mm -hmm. yeah. So a couple more questions for me and then we're gonna open that microphone over there. And uh, maybe this is the last question that's about us. A couple of, I think, big word concepts. And this one is, I think it's putting your mother in conversation with your grandmother, which I think you do okay. around freedom, which you identify, I think, with your grandmother, yeah. and excellence, which you identify with your mother. Those two words, freedom and excellence, which feel like big ethical choices. Right. Yeah, so I grew up with a mama who was just like, you know, she, she made you you know, brush your teeth with excellence, gargle with excellence, <laughs> spit out fucking excellent, you know? 
wipe your ass excellently, you know? And like, I just, I just understand who, who, who was, you know, very uh, clearly adamant about if you don't do such and such excellent, white people gonna get you. Now, retrospectively, she was right. <laughs> white people got me <laughs> for not being excellent, right? I should not have stolen that book, for example. But the reason they got me was because I was being like, I actually was being excellent. Like, I actually was like being excellent at 19 years old mm -hmm. at that thing black children are very seldom allowed to be excellent at, which is experimentation. Mm -hmm. And I mean this with every fucking like shred of my being, mm -hmm. that if you do not allow young black people to experiment mm -hmm. in this nation, you are terror. Mm -hmm. You are terror. You see what I'm saying? And so like for me, you know, I was experimenting with words, writing essays and shit that people at my school didn't like and that the fraternities didn't like. And then I got kicked out of school for fighting them because they didn't like something that I wrote. So my mama would say, KSA, you weren't excellent. But retrospectively, like, that was that abundance. Like, I was, I was, you know, to experiment, you have to in some way be free, like to freely experiment. That's what I used to love so much about growing up in Mississippi, across the street from my, my grandmother's house were these woods. And, I, and, and, and lots of us used to go in those woods and experiment with our bodies, but particularly the kids that we now know were, were, were queer. Like they found spaces in those woods to freely experiment. Mm -hmm. And when they were caught, the punishment was like, like beyond anything we could ever imagine. So excellence is what, I'm, I feel excellence and I feel like the black excellence people and all shit, all that shit, but this shit is so narrow. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's so, so narrow. Like, and I don't think it takes much to be excellent. My mama used to always say, you gotta be, y'all gotta work twice as hard as white people to get half as much. Hmm. But she never talked about what happens when you actually are twice as good as them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when I went to white school, school, I always say this, I went to school with white people, yo, Seth, <laughs> that, little, <laughs> that little motherfucker Seth, this motherfucker was doing his eyelids, right? We in eighth grade, you know you turn your eyelids inside out? <laughs> Fam, we stopped doing that shit in third grade. <laughs> like this, y'all y'all laughing, but that mean that mean this mean the world to me. Like, but my mama's whole thing was key. When you get in there, you gotta be more excellent. But I'm like, mama, they turn in their eyelids. You know? <laughs> They got the freshest library, they got all of this shit, and we up in there, you know, they, we up in there throwing words back and forth, playing vocabulary games and shit, and these motherfuckers just like laughing their ass off, like turning their, and I really do think, I don't like to fucking land on metaphor, but that's sort of a metaphor for, not you, but like white boys in this country, you know what I'm saying? Like we over here doing some shit, they turning their eyelids inside out, and next thing you know, they governor, you know? <laughs> a president. And so, like, my whole shit is like that excellent shit, yo, okay, I, but I wanna be, I want to accept my black abundance, and I want to, I want to accept my black abundance, and I want to do everything I can to encourage young black children in my state to be free, which means when they fuck up, we have to forgive them. That shit is the hardest thing in this nation. That means you gotta forgive them. That means you gotta give motherfuckers second and third and fourth and fifth chances. So, so excellence, I understand when my mama pushed it. <clears throat> she comes from that civil rights era. Um, and, then, and, then, and I was born into a black power era. But I just think in my, in, in my estimation, you know, like my mama would want, wouldn't want me up here wearing this fresh ass shirt that Samson made. She wouldn't want me up here in my sweats. But like, you know, we gotta be critical of ourselves, but we also gotta be honest about ourselves. You know what I'm saying? I've been writing for a minute. You know what I'm saying? I did not just become that nigga. Like, I've been that nigga in my heart mm -hmm. in terms of, like, the writing of, that I do. And so, like, 
I just gotta tell my mama who everybody else. I'm not finna like get up on this motherfucking like wear a goddamn suit for you. I'm sure y'all beautiful people if I could see you. But for some, no, I'm gonna come up here and be honest and talk to you. And to me, that is a freedom that I feel like I wish every black person in this world could have. And they do not. So we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do what we can to make that more possible. So we're going to turn on a light. If you have a question that you want to ask Kiese, um, the microphone is here. I just ask that you introduce yourself before the question. Usually it takes one to break the dam a little bit. So I really appreciate you being here because I don't never see no Southern black people here. Um, I'm originally from Montgomery. My family's from Demopolis and uh, Union Springs. And so I remember you talking a little bit about home. And so I've been here for about seven years. And so we have this thing in Montgomery, like once you leave, you can't come back. Mm. And it's one of those things because like you leave and they're proud of you but then you come back and now you think, or they think that you think that you're better than them. Right. So having that sense of home, you feel displaced. You feel as if like, you know, where are you supposed to be, right? Yeah. And I feel like that as soon as I went to Jackson State. And that was, ah. <laughs> that was five hours away, right? Cause wow. you went to college. Yep. And so I was like, okay, well I gotta leave here too. Cause like job opportunities, money, all of that stuff. And so once I got like my doctorate, I was like, I'm going back to the South to like teach. So I just got done teaching at USM. And I was like, I gotta give some, USM Southern Miss. Yes. Um, and so I was like, I gotta give something back because Alabama State don't ever hire nobody. So <laughs> once I got there, I was teaching interdisciplinary studies and it was taught like most of the people on the football team were taught like, hey, this is a flyby department. Right. And we were hired as a diversity cohort. And so they were like, you need to turn this entire department around and when I got like some of the assignments like the writing was not good mm. the comprehension was not good because they were there just to be football players mm -hmm. and you know we you talked a little bit about failure and I was like I've failed them like we failed them we we. And so I just wanted to get like your thoughts a little bit more about like what does home mean when you leave and you try to come back and you feel like we failed them I failed them. We failed them. Yeah, and I love, that is I, not your I, home anymore. I love that question. What's your name? T. I love that question, fam. Um, I, it's really complicated, though, because like when I graduated, it took me six years to graduate college because I got kicked out of uh, Millsaps, and I went to Jackson State, and then I went to Oberlin. And I remember when I graduated from Oberlin, uh, anybody who's graduated from any sort of place, you, pro you, you probably know this feeling. And you know, the whole, my whole family was making it about me. And the whole school is making it about me. Four years, really, was six years for me. But I was like, okay, four years. <laughs> but like, I remember when I saw my mama's face, I saw six years right here. I saw six years right here. I heard six years when she opened her mouth. And when I went home, I saw six years on, like, you know, this notion you go home and people on the corner on the same corner. Yeah, but if you go and listen to those people, the stories ain't gonna be the same stories that they told six years ago. Six years is six years for home. And so the thing that I had to understand more than anything was like, if you go home, yeah, you coming home with some letters and shit behind your name. And you know, where we've come from, they gonna people, our people gonna be like, yes. But I also think we owe it to our people 
to like use some of these skills that we have gathered at these institutions, which is hopefully the, the skill of questioning and asking, not in sort of like a, a way to dictate, but just to be like, where have you been? Where have you been? That's the question I think we got to ask when we go home. And I also noticed when I came home to Mississippi this last time, the thing that thankfully I was old enough to understand was like, yeah, you can come home and be like, yo, I want to start this organization. I want to come home and start this. But the most important generative work is asking people on the ground, at your home, in your home, how you can be a service. And I feel like that is some way that you, you, you sort of like step across that, that, that like gulf between like those who leave and those who stay. But we have to first understand that whether you stay or you leave, you have whatever, six years, four years, five years, 10 years of experience that's worth mining. Because one of the things about being in college is you have people ask you questions about yourself all the time. But I think one of the things that I will say about my people is that like they didn't have a lot of people to ask them questions. And if you don't ask the people who made home home about who they are and what they are, I think you're not gonna really have an understanding of home. So that's what I would say to that. And I really appreciate you given what you just gave to us. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so I'm a future teacher. I'm gonna start my first year teaching next year. And, thank you. <laughs> and, um, and I was thinking when you were talking about like the experimenting as a young black person and how important that is, I think that's like super important. And one thing that I wanna do is make sure that my black students know that they can do whatever the hell they want to. And I think about, you know, Seattle Public Schools has this thing, this curriculum where it's Black Lives Matter in school week, where they were like, it's not required, I don't think, but they have you teach these lessons about the Black Lives Matter movement and where it came from and all this stuff. And I taught it, and to me, it was like, it was really about teaching white kids about the Black Lives Matter movement rather than having anything to do with like the black kids, because they already know, and they've already seen it, and they've already been triggered by it and harmed mm. by it. And so to me, it felt like, it's, my question is more about like, how can we have that both? Like, how can I have inspire these young black kids? And I just don't want them to constantly be seeing themselves in those positions in the like Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that. Yeah. And they try and put a spin on it where it's like, you know, this is a group of people that always stand up for themselves. And I understand, like, you want to make sure that people know that there's some power in this, but I just know that from my standpoint, I don't always want my students to see themselves like that. I want them to know that experimenting and doing all this stuff is important. Right. So I just want to know your opinion about, like, as black teachers, our role in putting those two together, where we're being honest and we're supporting the learning of white kids and not black kids, but we're also not just showing black kids this side of the history and right. also inspiring them. Like, how can we put, do those together as black teachers of black students? Uh, the little something I have to say, I think asks too much of you. You know what I mean? I, I, think, I think what you are sitting in is, is the responsibility that you have to teach your students, but also to teach individual students and then to teach different groups of students. Mm -hmm. That's four jobs. Mm -hmm. When you're being paid half as much as what you should for one. Yeah. So, so I think organizing to, 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 to be compensated more fairly is part of what we're talking about. 
and 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 while one is organizing to be more fairly paid, and this is the part I think is kind of like controversial about what I'm saying. I think you kind of got to max out in that time you have. Meaning, I think you have to give everything you can to those students in front of you right now with the probability that your ass is going to burn out in five years from doing that. Yeah. And I think other people would say, do it the other way, right? Pace yourself. You got to be there for long, more people in the long run. I think that is absolutely true, but I also think that the students in front of you today, sadly, because premature death are not guaranteed a five year, 10 year down the line type of thing. We, as black folks, are not guaranteed to be here five, 10 years from now. So I just think you give everything you can to teaching those students in that classroom, but also I just think you gotta do, I think it's not fair what I'm saying, but I think you have to teach those kids, whether it's in like caucusing or, or, or what people call affinity groups, but I would just say office, like you have to meet with those black kids and talk and ask them what they need. Mm -hmm and try to give everything you can to them, knowing that what you are giving them is actually tools that are, are gonna be used to subvert the system, because if the system wanted you to do that work, they would pay you accordingly. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to fucking educate them black kids. Mm -hmm. I don't give a fuck, I don't have to live in Portland to know that. If they wanted you to educate those black kids affirmatively, wholly, heal, like with healing at the center and, 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 and radical experimentation as, as part of what they did, you, 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 you wouldn't even have to ask that question. But you do got to ask that question, and I think you do got to tend to those kids, no matter what. But most, most importantly, as importantly, I think you have to organize with other people trying to do this work so you can get more resources to be what you can be to those students. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you. For real. Thank y'all. Thank you. Kiese Lehman is a black Southern writer from Jackson, Mississippi. You can find links to Kiese's work and watch footage of our conversation by visiting the link in our show notes at OregonHumanities.org. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. Dave Friedlander is our editor. Ben Waterhouse, Karina Brisky, and Alexandra Powell-Bugden are our assistant producers. I'm Adam Davis. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.